The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky, Kinky Connections, and Kinky Education. We're kinky, done differently. what women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self. With questions asked by a guy. And now here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, hi there, catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. I am John, also known as Hi There, Catsuit, and it's great to have you along with us here as we begin the month of December. And last year, we kicked off Diversity December with an amazing human who is part author, part educator, and all authenticity instigator. And we kick off the month of December once again with this incredible human. Lee Harrington is an internationally known sexuality, relationships, and personal authenticity educator. Having taught in all 50 states and six countries, he brings a combination of playful engagement and thoughtful academic dialogue to a broad audience. An award-winning author, editor on gender, sexual, and sacred experience, his books include Traversing Gender, Understanding Transgender Journeys, and Sacred Kink, The Eightfold Pass of BDSM and Beyond, among many other titles. He's been blogging online since 1998, and he's been teaching worldwide since 2001. Now, Lee Harrington on what women and other wonderful humans want. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it the first five. First time you ever realized that a work that you had done through writing had an amazing impact on an individual. Well, as far as ones that that shook me and went, what? Uh, it was the first time my sacred kink book was listed in a college program, like required reading. And I was like, wait, wait my kinky book ended up in your academic world. So that's the first time I'd say like that impact on a, a broad scale, but on individual, I would say actually when I was having my first book I ever wrote, Shabari, you can use. Uh, at least the first one that ended up in distribution. Uh, uh, the person that was doing my test runs, I've decided for all of my hands-on book, I, hand, I pay someone who is completely not kinky to do all the things in it. And this was a friend of mine who I know through the gaming world, the, the role-playing game world. And I handed this to him and said, okay, I'm giving you 50 bucks. Go tie up your wife. And they came back and said, you know what? I'm really glad we did because I understand the notion of kinkiness better. And then, and then there was like a long pause and he said, and we're going to keep that crotch rope thing. <laughs> Don't know if we're kinky, but we're keeping the crotch rope. And so the idea of expanding someone's consciousness, I'd say would be mine. First time you felt that kink was a part of your everyday life? Uh, when I was, I'd say seven, uh, I, my, I'm multi-generational kinkster and I found my father's porn collection. And I remember finding a story that was this woman and it was a deer penthouse, right? Like it's all those kinds of stories. And she said, you know, it was my 21st birthday and my friend had me dress up in a latex costume and we put on a cloak and drove around and blindfolded me. 
And it's this whole story about how, and it's more nuanced, but it's this whole story about how she ends up shackled in a basement. And there's lots of kinky things that happen to her with a group of people. But what happened at the end of the story was she said, when I was unblindfolded, I looked around and it was all of my friends from the kinky sex community and they made my dreams come true. And I remember being seven or maybe eight and saying, you know what? I want to live in a world where there's people that make my dreams come true. And it was the only porn story that didn't have guilt or shame or whatever. And the idea of a world where whatever the weird thing was you were into, there's humans who would support you no matter what. I think that, that word of, of kink would be mine. It goes without saying that the next question should absolutely be first time someone made your dreams come true. <laughs> uh, my first master, we had planned on, like we'd met and we'd talked and we were planning on doing a really hardcore scene and I started getting really tender and vulnerable and scared. And he said, what's going on? And we ended up talking about a non-consensual experience that had happened in my life. And he ended up just having me curl up in his lap and not talk about it anymore. And I didn't realize that that was the dream I needed, but it's exactly what needed to happen. And to have him see that and not push through to our negotiated thing, I'd say that was mine. First time anyone ever approached you to teach a class and your reaction to it? Uh, 2001, I think. It was either 2000, 2000 or 2001. Uh, I was living in Portland, Oregon. There was a person who lived in, gosh, was it Eugene or Salem? I think it was Salem, uh, which is just south, about an hour, hour and a half. And uh, said, hey, I see all this bondage stuff you do. Do you want to come and teach a class for it? And I looked at him and I'm like, I can, but it's the stuff I do, but I get like, it was just like this awkward, pausey kind of moment, not because I didn't believe in my skills, but because I didn't believe someone would want to learn it from me. There were other educators, there were other teachers, why me? And, uh, and that notion of being trusted. First time you looked in the mirror and said, I am my authentic self. Probably, I mean, there's been waves of it, right? But I would say probably 2006, I was, um, 2005, somewhere in there, I was doing my initiation for Mother Bear was making those vows and commitments as a spirit worker. And there was one of the pieces that I needed to do. And during that process, I think there was a big piece of that. When we come back on what women and other wonderful humans want, I'm going to delve into some subjects with Lee that I never thought I would ever delve into before when we return. <laughs> If you ever wanted to try something a little kinky in the bedroom but had no idea where to start? Or maybe your partner just told you they're into water sports, no, not the jet ski kind, and you really want to fulfill their fantasy but you're nervous. That's totally normal. I'm Kate Sloan. I'm a sex journalist who's talked about kink in magazines like Cosmo, Playboy, and Glamour, and on my podcast, The Dildorks. My new book, 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do, is a guide to some of the hottest and best-known kinks out there, from age play to zapping and everything in between. Each section offers three suggestions for ways you can try out your new interest with a partner or even by yourself. Curious? Order your copy now at 101kinkythings.com and start learning new things about your sexuality. This is Alicia Zadig, author of the new book, Yes, Mistress. I'm also Mistress Alicia, a leading dominatrix and BDSM expert. My book, Yes, Mistress, takes you on a provocative, eye-opening journey into the erotic worlds of kink, fetish, and female domination. Join me for a fascinating conversation. 
Male submission is more common than you think and more rewarding than you can ever imagine. Yes, Mistress is available now on Kindle and you can pre-order your copy at yesmistress.com. Hi, this is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edge Play. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets 50 shades of gray. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you. Everybody's got to start somewhere. And for Jean Bardot, that somewhere was pretty famous. It was called um, Sexorama. It was in the First Avenue nightclub here in Minneapolis. It was a Wednesday. And um, it was kind of an audition to be a performer every week for this Sexorama event. I lied about my age. I was underage. I had balls larger than life, I guess, at the time and just went for it. <laughs> the legendary Jean Bardot, December 14th on what women and other wonderful humans want. Welcome back to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Date and Kinky, joined by Lee Harrington, the amazing educator and author. And Lee, I actually wrote something on FET today that said something to the effect of, it's hard to believe the things that I think about and consider now than I don't think I ever would have before. Hmm. And the first subject would be, I have always been very much a straight male. Mm -hmm. Growing up, actually had a bit of homophobia, born in a, into a very conservative house. Moved to Washington, got to meet more people in more diverse orientations and lifestyles and, and saw my first non-binary gender roles, although people didn't call it that at that time. And now I associate with so many people with so many different identifications. Mm and I feel totally at ease with everyone. In your background, what is it that goes through a person's head and how do you help guide them to understand that you've grown in your life, you're able to see things that you weren't able to see and to not be scared as hell about it. I think for me, it's about looking at comparisons in someone's life. That if somebody's trying to understand why a transgender person would modify their body, and it's somebody who's gone through gastric, gastric bypass surgery, I talk to them about gastric bypass surgery and speak in the language of their experience. If it's somebody who's like, I've never heard of these words before. I never knew that that might be me. I never knew I might love these things. And that person's a foodie. Let's talk about the fact that you didn't know you'd love Ethiopian food because you grew up as a white kid in the US. You'd have no idea there wouldn't be an exposure until you put that in your mouth and got to savor it. And so I think for me, a lot of it is finding metaphors and experiences that can be paralleled because humans learn. Humans, just straight up humans, it's not about kinky humans or gay humans or straight humans, just humans learn. We get exposed to new ideas. We live and grow and inspire each other. And to have that be any different in our sexuality and identity I don't think allows us to acknowledge how powerful we simply are by having lived. By being identified as high there cat suit and by posting pictures of my legs in very shiny tights and sometimes a full body shot, 
I will receive compliments from males or male identified folks. And in the past, that would have totally freaked me out. Mm. Now, not only do I accept them, I love the compliments because I realize it's a human complimenting a human. Yes. And for me, it's so freeing in that way, because while I may not have a sexual orientation that makes me want to have an intimate relationship with this person, my heart says, this is a genuine feeling that this person has for me, accept it, acknowledge it, and grow with it. Well, there's lots of different types of attraction or interest between human beings. There is sexual attraction. There might also be kinky attraction. There might be intellectual attraction, energetic attraction, emotional attraction. Mm -hmm. The number of people I know that their social circles, their social attractions might be to a specific gender or specific hobby, right? And I think when we start hearing these different types of attraction and interest and take it all out of sexuality, make it broader, I think there's a lot of possibility there for tapping into our humanity. Mm -hmm. What would be the web of everything we're connected to if we stopped having hyper-specific labels and practiced living? For me, it's also when you talk about those compliments, one of the things I've realized is that most of the time it's not about me. It's what they're seeing, what they're appreciating. It's like this lens, it's like this lens into their imagining. And the gift of getting to see someone else's imagination and someone else's perception, I think it's pretty powerful. But whenever I've also in turn received hateful messages to remember that it's not about me. They don't know me. They saw one picture of shiny tights. They have no context, but I inspired them to have an an emotional experience, but I didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. I was simply a photo. They were on their journey. And for me, when I started realizing that it it changed a lot of my self-perception around, especially around hate language, but also around, the notion of, of compliments, because if it meant that I got 30 likes on one photo and only five on another, it wasn't about me. And it's not that I wasn't beautiful enough. And it's not that I didn't try. It's just that that's what life was that day. Being a writer, you also express yourself with your words. How much more powerful, if it is that, and I'm making an assumption here, How much more powerful is the love that people give to your words rather than a physical or visual appearance? Hmm. So one of the tricky things is that a couple of my books do feature photos of me, which was hilarious before I did a rewrite of Shibari You Can Use because I had people starting to ask like, oh, did your sister write this? Uh, for folks who don't know, I was assigned female at birth. I'm a transgender man. And uh, and so I think that makes it a little bit of a muddy question. One of the things I've realized about books is that when I go through the birthing process, I work together creatively with other people to germinate an idea. I feed it. I water it. I create it. I give birth to it. And it then goes out into the world. I can't control after it's out there what my child will do. It is out there interacting with other beings and creating its own life. And so I think for me, that question of do I receive compliments, et cetera, I receive a bevy of responses, but They're often not about me unless it's a comment like, oh, you're such a great author, like these passive comments. Mm -hmm. Or the, this one piece you wrote, really here's how it changed stuff that I am doing. But I think for me, one of the things I've just simply come to realize is that I, I just can't control it. It's out there as compared to an image of me that is at least still 
visually me, even if it had less of my spirit in it, because my books have more than most of my photographs. Do you have any idea how admired you are? Because uh, anytime I mention the name Lee Harrington, instant recognition and oh my gosh, he's just the best. Two years ago, I was at a rope bondage conference before, before the current times. <laughs> and I had somebody refer to me as the Mr. Rogers of kink. <laughs> and I own a large sweater collection, so it seemed reasonable. But I think for me, that, that notion of, of communicating, like making things accessible and, and having people be able to know that they already have knowledge to tap into what it is that is out there. I definitely think that is admired. And one of the things that I dance with is this notion, and, and it's not for a while it was, uh, you know, imposter syndrome. But the more I've sat with it, I think it's the difference between does someone want to get to know Lee, this random dude who really likes playing Pokemon Go, or is it the construct of what somebody learns in a classroom where it's, I might be providing the ideas and the information, but you're the one taking it home. And, they're, and people are emotionally attached to the person that is themselves that they took home. And the crucible of that was my name or my work. And so I think it's an interesting piece of, do you realize how much you're admired? For me, it becomes the question of, is it that you're admiring me or is it that you're admiring the beautiful transformative work that you're doing? In which case I would love to see more people give themselves credit. And it really goes to some of the discussions we've had on this show, especially since we made the transition to talking about people's connection with their authentic selves. Mm -hmm. Think of all the fetish models, the pro-doms, even the athletes that we've had on here. There is definitely, in most cases, a separation between the character and the human. Mm. And when I talk to, I always go back to Christina Carter in my second mm. show. Mm -hmm. There's Ogre, Wonder Woman, Catwoman, everything she exemplifies with her body and her outfits. And there's Christina Carter that has her doggies and loves her doggies and loves going out and having a nice time with friends. Mm -hmm. And to be able to see that person while looking at the other one is nearly impossible. So when people that I'm at say BDSM or kink conferences or festivals or events, and people are interested in doing what's called pickup play. The idea that you meet someone, you flirt with them and you say, Hey, do you want to go do this thing? It wasn't pre-planned. It wasn't months in the making. It's not a long-term partner. It's picking up some potential play. And I have people during pickup play spaces come up to me and say, I would love to have you insert activity here, right? I would love to have you tie me up. I would love to have you spank me. I would love to have whatever it is. And I've gotten to get to the following question. We'll take bondage as an example. Mm -hmm. Are you interested in getting tied up by me? Are you interested in getting tied up by someone or are you interested in getting to know me? Because I'm gonna have not just three different answers from that person, but three different ways that I will now interact with that person. Because if somebody says, I won't get tied up by you, I then ask the follow-up question, why? <laughs> because sometimes the answer is, I respect your skill set. You seem safe which is a very different answer and you know, navigation than because you get me turned on, right? Different conversation. 
But if it's that you're skilled and I trust your skill set, oh, you're actually hungry for safety. Let me introduce you. If I'm not in the mood, let me introduce you to two or three other people that I will share with you that I think are potentially a safer fit for you. Let me do that if I'm not in the mood, because what I really want is want to go play Parcheesi and drink some lattes, right? Like that's more, um, I actually don't know how to play Parcheesi. I just really like the idea of saying it. (laughs) Yahtzee. Uh, But Yahtzee, right, exactly. But I think there's this piece there when you talk about not being able to see one or the other is how do you move between spaces? It's kind of like folks, if you work as an engineer and folks are used to seeing you in your engineering space and then they run into you at a movie theater, how are you going to switch in your mind where you're at? And so I think sometimes we extrapolate these out to big examples like Christina, but but I think it's also about self-assessment. Like, and even like for me, I was at a coffee shop yesterday catching up with a friend because coffee, it's a theme for me. And I was catching up with them and I saw someone I knew from the local queer BDSM conference that had just happened called Unabashed. And I saw them and I was so excited to see somebody from the event out in the wild that I went, hey. And then I realized, oh shit, I may have just outed someone. And so I quickly and efficiently turned away from them as if nothing had happened. And I sat down at a table and we went on with the conversation, the person I was there with. And I wrote them a note later saying, hey, sorry about that. My brain was thinking of you in a different context. If there's anything that needs amends or what, please let me know because that was inappropriate behavior. Because I don't know how out you are. Mind you, I never said it's great to see you at the BDSM conference. Like I never didn't do that. Uh, But they were fine, right? But I think there's this piece of the fact that we anchor into a beautiful part or whatever part of another human being because we want connection. Mm -hmm. And so I see you as an engineer, I'm an engineer, we connect as engineers, connection is so cool. Oh, I just ran into you at the movie theater. Well, I still want that connection. Mm -hmm. That connection is so savory even if it's one that's negative, right? Because people want that strong connection. And so I think that becomes for me the question is are we still seeking connection with that person, right? In which case I learn new ways from our neurotransmitters to run into each other. (laughs) Or is it that I cherish them in this one space? So I'm gonna keep forcing them into that space. And I think having us, check ourselves and make sure that we're not doing number two, or at least understand that number two has a chance of being harmful to some people. Does your radar go up at some of these conferences of, do they want to be tied by Lee Harrington or do they want to be tied by me? So actually um, I'd say until about five or six years ago, uh, I was excited to play with people in general and I just want to connect with everyone. And then I had a really stark realization around power. Whether I like it or not, if I am a white person and a potential play partner is black, I need to at some level, verbally or non-verbally, acknowledge the power differences we have based on the unconscious, oftentimes unconscious racism and the conscious racism in our country. As a teacher, if I am a headliner, especially at an event, I need to name that I have unspoken or sometimes spoken power in that space because if a scene goes wrong people are going to look at me and probably and there's chances that people be like oh it's you know it will be blown in a different direction than if i was the average person i've also had people say to me well you clearly must know everything because you've been doing this for 25 years and i'm like "Eh, i'm just this person right but i'm also not just that person 
I am also not just that person. I am all of these points of intersectionality that I need to name and see. And so for me, I've stopped doing most of my pickup play unless it is skill set based, right? I am playing with a couple or with one person to learn a skill set. Um, or it's people that I know outside of that context and we just happen to be in the same space, people I know from uh, exposures in other places. But I think there, I, I was actually, so there's a new book that came out recently called uh, God Captivating Classes by, and it's by Shea and Stefanos Tiziano. And it's mm -hmm. all about pedagogy, right? Teaching theory in the context of sexuality and relationship educators. And Daryl, who's an educator from, Darren is an educator from uh, Toronto, Ontario, who teaches predominantly on polyamory and power exchange. He said, ideally, the more you teach, the smaller your play circuit should be. Because it means that you're naming and acknowledging the fact that if somebody's in my classroom, me playing with them later that night potentially can be seen as a form of coercion. That notion of starstruckedness, that's oftentimes an unconscious form of coercive behavior if you use that to leverage sexuality. And so I loved that idea and have sat with that idea over the last five, six years is when am I unconsciously leveraging power? And so I encourage folks that are listening, like, where are your places? Because for me, when I started realizing things like, oh, I make different amounts of money than a lover or a partner, there's power there, right? We've got a different educational background. There's power there. We've been in the kink communities for different amounts of, of time, or we've learned more. Because even if you've only been in the scene for one year, but you've attended a class three days a week and have been doing this immersively, education is a form of power that sometimes gets leveraged. So I think for me, that's affected my question a lot or my answer. When we return on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, more with Lee Harrington in a moment. Hi, I'm Venus. I've been sharing my love for this beautiful relationship dynamic for well, years now, and I am beyond thrilled to announce that finally there's a matchmaking service for single women and single men who want a loving, cuckolding relationship. It's called Venus Connections. It's a personalized matchmaking service and three-week educational program that's safe, private, and individualized for what you want. Women, you no longer need to endure the headache of filtering through blank profiles and dealing with online creeps. And men, you can stop wasting time on those fake profiles and women with all sorts of ulterior motives. Venus Connections works for you to find what you want. You can learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. You deserve the relationship of your dreams. Hello, I'm Jesse Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. And for a bit more of a personal glance into my life, make sure to check out my January 15th interview on what women and other wonderful humans want. Hi. This is Rachel Leadham, AKA The Conscious Masochist. I'm an author and sadomasochism integration mentor who encourages the mindful exploration of your dark side. I offer astrological birth chart readings to interpret your sadomasochistic blueprint through the clues found within your chart. You can learn more about my work, including the ebook Conscious Masochism, at my website, www.rachelleadham.com. And join us on Instagram at The Conscious Masochist. And be sure to check out my episode in the archives of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. 
Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please, remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. Welcome back to the show, joined by author, educator, kinkster, and just all-around wonderful human, Lee Harrington. It is wonderful having you with us. Oh, such a delight. Thank you for having me back on. Well, you are our second return because Kate Sloan beat you by a couple of weeks, but she had put out this book called 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do, and I couldn't resist. Oh, that's just, that's such a great title. I love that. So let's talk about one of your titles, Sacred Kink. Yeah. Explain to me what that means. So in Northern tradition shamanism, there is uh, Raven Caldera, who's another author who predominantly works in pagan communities, but also writes a lot in dominance, submission, and power exchange. And he was writing about Northern tradition shamanism and how there's eight major routes we reach altered states of consciousness. The notion there is a rhythm Right. I don't know if you've had this, like you're on a dance floor or you're listening to music and your body just starts swaying in time and like time can pass or like you thought two hours happened and it was actually only 15 minutes. Right. So music, rhythm, whether it's on my skin, whether it's the sounds in the air, that our brain can take us on a journey out of our norm and into some something or somewhere else. So he argues that there's rhythm that there's breath work, that there is flesh and the idea of how we are sensual with our skin, the, argue, the, the notion that there are ordeals or challenges we go through, whether it's your bar mitzvah, you know, bar mitzvah, right? <laughs> or whether it is hanging on flesh hooks, right? Your ordeals in life. There's asceticism where we strip ourselves down to nothing, people who are fasting as a great example. There is the notion of, it's like, where, where's my list? Past breath rhythm. Um, there is the notion of sacred plants, which doesn't get talked about in the kink community very much, but the idea that there are ethnogenic um, medicines and chemicals that can transform our brain. I refer to all the other things as hacking our software. Path of sacred plants hacks your hardware, mm. <laughs> right? But the other, um, the other ones that I think of, um, are also the idea of, uh, gosh, okay, I'm gonna have to pull it up. I'm missing two. I hate when my brain does this. Uh, da, 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 da. That's okay. I can do an edit here. That's perfectly fine. Okay, if then hold on just a second. I'm gonna grab my book because I am. My brain is completely missing it. Oh, okay. Ritual and horsing. Okay, cool. Okay. There is the notion of ritual, right? How if we are going to church every single Sunday or we get up in the morning every single day that our mind transforms from that simple morning ritual of a cup of coffee, right? That our brain is set on a different path. We altered our consciousness. And the last one is what gets called the path of the horse. And it refers to uh, voodoo and santeria traditions of the notion that the human being is a horse upon which spirit can ride. Mm. And so in the world of kink, I look at that as things like doing puppy play or role playing in general, where suddenly I am seeing the world in a different way than if I had never been in that space, that literally being down on all fours my brain will shift into a different way of examining the world. And so the, the notion of these eightfold sacred paths, uh, Raven introduced me to the notion of them. And I my brain took it from there into the world of sexuality as well as human history. The, the book you know, traverses back and forth between the things that have appeared in faith and religion and spirituality worldwide and the tools and techniques that can be used or are often unconsciously used in our sexuality and be able to use them consciously. 
in this world that we live in, which is full of so many sensations, so many pieces of stimulation that mm. we get on an everyday basis, from the television to the radio to the phone constantly coming at us. And I have often said that, especially when I have had one of those weeks where all these stimuli have totally overtaken me, mm. I will say to my queen or one of my play partners, take me away from all of this. Mm -hmm. And that's what kink does for me is it takes me away from all of this. Is there a certain way that you have taught or you have discovered that allows you to let go? Because almost like someone who doesn't want to be put into a trance, but desires hypnosis, it seems so difficult sometimes to let the world go so you can be taken away. Well, I think the question becomes, do you need to let it go? Or do you need to acknowledge it and put it on a shelf and still have it be there? Because for some people, especially those who have danced with trauma in their history, telling someone, just let it go. It's okay. You don't need hypervigilance, right? Anybody who has dealt with childhood sexual trauma, anybody who's been in the military and lived through, you know, mm -hmm. you know frontline stuff, telling somebody you're supposed to shelve your, you know, your vigilance is almost unkind. And so when I look at and have conversations with some of those folks, instead of saying, let's, you know, let go of everything. It's where can we put this so that you feel safer to go on a journey? Because we can't always be safe, but we can be safer. And so, and you talk about the idea of hypnosis doesn't work, but they still want to be hypnotized. They still want to go into a trance state. Maybe their ears and their eyes don't do that, but their skin might. What would it be like to receive a flogging that is in that same rhythmic pattern while someone is whispering to you? What is it like to have really good penetrative sex or anything with a rhythm on your body that is erotic? And does that take us into a state other than clinging desperately to questions about whether we left the gas on the stove? And when you talk to me about, and I thank you for that gift of sharing for me what that looks like for you, I think having people talk about what these things look like for them can be hugely powerful. So if somebody says to me, God, the only time I ever relax is when I'm watching television and I can watch the sports teams I love. Doesn't just tell me they like sports. What it tells me is also they're more likely to relax if they have an emotional investment in the situation. So generic person doing hypnosis with them, meh, but holding the hand of a lover when you're doing your hypnosis, we just upped emotional and physical investment. And by finding out you love your team, we're able to start extrapolating that. And so I, I would encourage people to think about when are the times you do let your shoulders down? When are the times that you can find those spaces? And if the answer is during kink, what about the kink? Is it about the fact that I feel that I can trust someone and hand over the reins to my spirit? That's huge to learn about me. And that's not just about the spanking, right? As good as the spanking is, it's like this extra... It's like this extra layer of flavor to it that I find really intriguing. I had my first ever scene with a lovely woman in a latex cat suit over the weekend. Absolute fantasy and dream come true. Mm -hmm. We got to the dungeon a little early, so it was just the two of us. Mm. And when your entire being builds up to this one moment, 
you can have a lot of expectations, but thankfully mm -hmm. I chose anticipations instead. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it was everything I imagined it could be, but what really made me feel alive was afterwards when the words, this is just the start of our journey happen. Mm. It's not, it wasn't just about that one scene. Yeah. I know I'm talking a lot about myself in this particular show, but I, I talk about what I know and that my life has been shaped by this innate ability to be worried about whether something can happen. Mm -hmm. I went to a party on Saturday and I got to top somebody uh, as part of a co-topping scene. It was wonderful. And then as the night went on, I was looking at my watch going, am I going to have time for this person to top me? And suddenly I start melting and I end up lying on somebody's lap being all worried about it. Mm-hmm. The fact is, hope provides so much power in what we do. Hmm. And the fact that you know there's going to be a next step, that it isn't just a story that stops there. How does one who feel, and this may be a big question for you, Lee Harrington. <laughs> we'll see where it goes. How does one who lives on hope still believe in that hope that all of it will come together. So it's interesting. My, um, my boy and I have been together for about seven months now. It's still, we're still laying a lot of foundation, but we have a lot of hope. And one of the things we talked about in the first week was that we are both people who want to dream for 10 years from now want to build foundations and talk about you know, like long-term visions and all of that kind of stuff very early on, which can be both luscious, but also be that almost stifling hope that instead of being here and today, and yes, simultaneously building foundations, but instead of being here, we are in the future and anxious or looking back on things that didn't happen where our hopes did not get fulfilled and therefore living in that place of sorrowful angst. And both of us have that. And so it led to a really interesting conversation around how do we want to today both build those foundations and also still be here? because we realized that was our history was not being here. Mm. And I think that notion that you talk about of those of us who live upon hope is the question of, are you living upon hope or is it, and this, it, I'm not saying you specifically, I'm saying the un universal you mm -hmm. living on hope or living on expectation. Because you talk about the idea that you know, I did someone, so they have to do me. Is that a hope that you want or is it an expectation? Because if, at least for me, if I start building the story of, you know, if you had an orgasm, I get to have an orgasm too. That means that there's a transactionality in relationship in the back of my mind. I do you, you do me, which you know what? transactionality as a base of how we have our erotic lives is fine. Set, when I was doing sex work, as an example, transactionality meant I got a handful of cash. You had an amazing experience that was delicious. Transactions are fantastic. What do you feel is a fair energetic exchange in your connections? But I think for me, checking myself Am I projecting an expectation onto the situation? And then when it doesn't happen, I'm going into anxiousness or when I'm wondering if it's going to happen, I go into anxiety. Or is it that I am hopeful in which case, what is the hope doing? 
whose hope is it? What is the hope fueling? Like, what does hope do in your specific life? Because for some people, hope is dreams, is casting a future that we can work towards. It is a, it is a big picture that I, I just got a copy of the, um, the Black Queer Tarot. And it's an amazing tarot deck that was um, done as a fundraiser specifically for um, Black queer individuals. And one of the things it has in the advertisement is, um, I dream of a world where Black queer people thrive. If that's my hope, right? I can see that hope. Hope becomes a fuel upon which I can start, like it's, it becomes a, almost a machine that I can start putting gas into or batteries into, and it will take me on a route to that place. It, it, it inspires me. That hope inspires me to a future potential. But if the hope is there out of, well, I hope this happens. It's like this, I don't know, for me, I find sometimes when I'm doing that, it's this loneliness, mm. right? Or depression, or if it doesn't happen, then what? Like I start casting story. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's any of your experience, but I think sometimes hope gets split into these different directions of what, what hope is doing. Because I think just saying I am hopeful, what does that mean? Oh, it's inspiring me to do something in the future to work towards what I want, or I'm going to sit on my ass. I hope it manifests. Mm-hmm. Or if it doesn't manifest, I'm going to be depressed. Like, what does this word hope mean to us? If I were to visually put a picture on what it means, it would be something that you would see of a set of fiber optics coming out into the ether, searching for the other light. Mm. Not to necessarily complete every circuit but to start because fiber optics build pictures when it comes to television and that was my business for so long yeah to have those fiber optics come together so that the possibility of a complete picture can come together the connection begins with light But as it gets closer, you can bring these two fibers together to create a solid connection and a perfect picture. Mm. If I were to visualize what it looks like, that's what it would look like to me. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, I think with that metaphor, and I don't know this is, I know this is true with water pipes. I do not know if this is true for fiber optics. So please let me know if I'm not getting the technology right. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I'm bringing pipes together and they run and and they finally connect up, I can run things for miles, right? And I can have different kinds of water pressure in it, all that kind of stuff, as long as the seal is solid, right? Two pipes come together. Sometimes it takes a connector. But if I have my pipe coming out from my building, and I don't have a cap on it, but I'm just sending it out into the world, either I end up leaking or when I go to turn on a knob, it's dry and I expected there to be water flowing. And both of them can have challenges. And so I think for me, when I hear those kinds of stories, I'm sending stuff out there is if it doesn't run into something, then what? Mm-hmm. Am I leaking? Am I sorrowful without the water running? What is happening there? Because I think for me, I I think as an example, after my divorce, I had a lot of that, like, oh, we're untangling things or cutting the cords. And I think when some people cut cords, like if you cut rope, literal rope, it starts fraying apart Mm -hmm. unless you either tie it or whip it or put a giant freaking knot in it. It just keeps fraying. And so I wonder sometimes like in these untwistings, are we doing the work to tie ourselves off so we have something there to reconnect with someone? And to take that analogy one step further, when you cut the rope, 
it's never going to be perfect again. Well, it's not that it's not going to be perfect. It's that it's something new. Because okay. if I had a 50-foot if I had a 50-foot piece of rope, mm-hmm. right? And I cut it in half, I can now use it actually functionally because a piece of 50 foot rope, I'm tripping over that shit (laughs) all the time. Like I'm trying to pull it through and I look like a mad magician. Like it's just, it doesn't work for me and how I do bondage, but Mm -hmm. give me a 25 foot piece of rope. I'm like, Oh, I can do something different. I couldn't do before. And if I then, if it gets cut again in half, I now have two 12 and a half foot pieces of rope and I can now do CBT <laughs> that I couldn't do easily with a 25 foot piece of rope. And so it's like each time something's cut, yeah, it's never going to be the same length, but it opens up new possibilities that weren't there previously. We're talking about rope and this is a wonderful segue into <laughs> talking about rope and Uh its use in bondage and its use in bringing mindfulness to someone who is being tied or is doing the tying. Mm -hmm. And so many times you'll take a look at a, at some rope performance or uh, a rope scene and you're going, boy, it must be really good once they get it all done. But the fact is, the best part is the doing of it. Am I right? That is a perspective that is not universal. Okay. There are people for whom bondage is the point, right? The fact that we are pulling the rope out, the people who are fetishists and can smell the rope, the people who enjoy the slow sensuality, the people who enjoy the rough rigging and being pulled into someone, the people who enjoy the rhythm of it, the people who enjoy the play of it, the people who enjoy making art. But that's only a piece of the bondage population. There are people who do rope bondage because shit needs done. I need someone attached to that frame so I can do stuff to them. Like it's just functionality. Mm -hmm. I know other people for whom it is the artistry and the final image is the crafted piece of artwork or sculpture. And that is the thing of it. But for folks who have only ever explored those two last ones that I shared, trying out some of these other things can be useful. But I've done rigging on folks that it's just like, nope, that's not how their brain works at all. And so instead of me getting upset about how their brain works, I'll just change how we do stuff. Cool. The bondage isn't thing. But what is the point of the bondage? Because if the point of your scene was connection and sensuality, we're going to do a rope bondage scene that's connective with sensuality, Mm -hmm. right? If your big thing is being feeling helpless, let's put you in poses that will help enable the sensation of hopelessness in how you perceive it, Mm -hmm. right? How is it that you do things? What about it? whether it's for the rigor or for the person who is being bound, because neither of those has to have to do with who is dominant or submissive. Mm -hmm. Cause I know a lot of people that's just, those roles just don't exist. It's who is tying, who is being tied, or are you both? Or is there a collaboration of some sort? And I, I think for me, it becomes this question of, is that thing the idea that you bring up of bondage is the point that we are doing this thing. That is the journey of it. Your personality type might be hugely served by the idea of we have the rope going in, you're tied, you're partially untied, you're rebound into a different position, you're unbound into a different position, you're out here, and then there's the untying that is just as much of the scene, just as much as the tying, which is going to be a very different journey than people who love the rope in love the challenge of it, but as soon as they've had their orgasm or their peak or their whatever it is, fuck the untying, don't care, we're done. Yeah. Or someone I met that literally said their best rope bondage scene they ever had was being sat on the ground and an entire bag of rope dumped on them. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, cool, go you. And and so I think for me, it's about the exploration. Let's try this. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's try this. Let's try this. 
and then see which things we savor out of those experiences. One of the most fun things I've ever done involving rope was I demo bottom for a class called Rough Rope. Mm. And the woman I did it with, uh, Katzchen Klein, who was a guest early on this program, knows, I think it's Krav Maga, the, the Krav Maga, mar- yes. Krav Maga, the, the mixed martial art of, of Krav Maga. In other words, she could kick my ass if she ever wanted to. <laughs> but what she did is she said, I want you to do everything you can to not be tied up. Mm-hmm. That was my mission. Yeah. And she said, go. And of course she starts pulling on different parts of me. And before I know it, I was pretty much upside down with every part of me bound in a way that I couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> and I was like, how did I get here? What? <laughs> because I was so concentrating on moving my body and getting it out of the way that she had had everything bound up and was like, well, that was fun. <laughs> so I, I can that. totally see the, the binding part of, you know, just getting shit done, as you put it, being so much fun as well. So absolutely. Do you, do you yeah. have a favorite kind or is there something that you just live for doing? Bondage wise, kink wise? Uh, no, as far as as far as rope, because you, you uh, mm. your other big book is about shibari, so just kind of yeah, actually I, about I, that. Yeah, and also had a chance to like, those two books that I wrote, and then uh, shibari you can use, and more shibari you can use, but also had a chance. Most people don't know about it. I edited an anthology called Rope Bondage and Power that was eighteen different different people who do bondage on all different sides, talking about the intersections of power wow. and rope. And yeah, it's an amazing anthology if people have a chance to check it out. But I think for me, my biggest delight is probably either breathing with or tying in time with folks' breath is how do we tap into our nervous system, our, our, our literal life force, and use rope as an extension of, of connecting into that. I'd say that's my juicy piece. I'd love to keep going, but I always promise that we try to keep it about an hour. I know I could talk with you all night and I've really enjoyed this. What is coming up for you in 2022? Do you have some things you're really looking forward to? Do you have any books in the work? What's going on with Lee Harrington as we head towards a new year? Absolutely. Um, Some things I'm excited about in January, I'm going to be teaching at Southwest Leather Conference in Phoenix, Arizona, including doing an entire class just on sacred kink and another one on leather identity. So I encourage people to come to that if you're anywhere that is able to get to it. Uh, In May, I'm going to be out in uh, Cleveland, which I'm super excited about to get to rescheduled. We've rescheduled three times because of COVID. So fingers crossed it works this time. And beyond that, I'm going to be continuing my series of Delving into Power, which is my three-day dominance and submission intensive that I've been running since 2009. I started taking them online a year and a half ago, and it's been really amazing having folks from all over the world getting to do so. And I'm hoping in 2022, fingers crossed, we're going to do one that is based on a European schedule and I'll just wake up at stupid AM because, <laughs> uh, you know, this is the things I do for education, uh, but do ones for, for other time zones not just based in the United States. And for folks who didn't know about them, beyond the stuff that I do that are weekend events or whatnot, uh, at least through the beginning of the year, I've been running since March last year, and I want to do it for at least two years. Every single Wednesday, I'm doing a different discussion-based class during uh, the U.S. daytime uh, that range from everything from discussing tarot cards to teaching theory to why do we enjoy water sports and talking about, uh, you know, understanding rope bondage. Like it's, it's a, a potpourri <laughs> of experiences. And I hope folks can come join me for that, as well as all my Patreon classes and weekly resources I share over on patreon.com forward slash passion and soul. 
and passion and soul is your handle pretty much everywhere, isn't it? That is true. Well, those two things literally do wrap up who you are. And Mm. as we wrap up this edition, again, I can't thank you enough. This has been an amazing conversation. And uh, how about we meet each other in about another year and do this all over again? It's always such a delight. And you are looking in your shininess. You are smashing it. I didn't get a chance to say that earlier, but I love it. Thank you so much, Lee. A few days after this interview, Lee decided to make a very important decision in his life. He had been battling some health problems for quite a while, and he decided to step back from kink and teaching a little bit to be able to become his best self and his best healthy self. We wish Lee all the luck in the world, and we appreciate him joining us for this wonderful interview. Next week, we're going to have a different kind of show as we move into December. We're going to talk to two of the best fetish producers in the country as Shinybound joins us along with the legendary John Woods, whose fetish producing goes all the way back to Harmony Communications. It's an amazing story of two people who have admired each other for quite a while. And you'll really enjoy hearing their thoughts on what it's like being a fetish producer back then and being one now. Until then, I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time, and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky.